good morning, everyone. It is great to be here with you. It's always interesting when I have the opportunity to bring the word. It really makes me appreciate the work our pastor does. And soon you will appreciate it more as well. <laughs> but it is truly an honor for me to be here, uh, really. Um, I love this church, uh, uh, and I am always, uh, uh, well, I'll just say I consider it a privilege to be able to bring the word this morning. If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn back to Psalm 19. Now, I'm not going to exegete that text this morning, but I would like to use it as sort of a launching point for what I have prepared for you this morning. Psalm 19. And, by the way, thank you, Tommy, for reading that. It When he was reading it, now, I don't know if, if you, you may or may not have caught this, but this psalm is really broken up into two parts. The first six verses, the psalmist talks about God revealing himself through general revelation. And uh, I love that opening verse. It's a very familiar verse to us, but the, I love it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, just two wonderful verses there, actually, that talk about the, the way in which God reveals himself to all mankind through, through creation. But notice in verse 7, it shifts. God is still revealing himself, but now... He's revealing himself how? Through his word. So we have general revelation, but then we have special revelation. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. God's special revelation, God's word. And I want to read just a, a, a few of these passages because I think that they are going to convey a, an appreciation that I want us to pick up on here this morning, an appreciation for God's word. Verse 7, the psalmist writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In verse 10, he says, More to be desired uh, are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, I could go on with this verse, but what I want us to see here is that these are just a few of many verses that speak about the importance, the importance of, of God's word. Also, 
Let's look at a few verses in Psalm 119. Aren't you glad I didn't have you read Psalm 119, Tommy? We'd still be here, right? So, Psalm 119. By the way, in Psalm 119, the psalmist uses eight different terms to describe the Word of God and, and how it sustained his life. And just to give you a few examples, in verse 9, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? What's the answer? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 17. He writes, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Then we skip down to verse 73. He says, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Verse 105, and and everyone will be familiar with this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Of course, I love how the psalmist describes the man of God in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, I could go on, but you... See the point here. For the psalmist, God's word is his spiritual lifeblood. It's his spiritual lifeblood. And I would say that God's word is the lifeblood of every believer. God's word is the lifeblood of his church. It's our source of wisdom our source of hope, our source of strength to protect us from the evil one. God's word is sure, it is unchanging, it is eternal. It is something in which we should delight. It is to be valued more than earthly riches. And why is that? Because as the psalmist tells us, The value we place on God's word, the degree to which we learn and submit ourselves to God's word, 
when God's Word is the delight of our hearts, these things are directly linked to the quality of our spiritual lives. And that is my question to you all this morning. How much do you value God's Word? Is it the delight of your heart? Do you desire it more than earthly riches? Do you store it in your hearts? Do you meditate on it day and night? Well, this morning, I want to share four truths about Scripture that I hope will encourage you in this area. Four truths about Scripture that I hope will will challenge you. Um, we sometimes refer to these truths as the 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 four marks of Scripture, the four qualities of Scripture, the four characteristics of Scripture. You see the point. But these are four truths about Scripture that I want us to to memorize and I want us to understand because I feel that understanding these truths from the systematic approach that we will take will will really help us appreciate the word of god in a in a deeper way the first truth i want to share is that god's word is authoritative god's word is authoritative And we say God's word is authoritative, first of all, because it comes from God. Now, to those of us here, this is probably somewhat redundant, and I get that. I know that I'm preaching to the choir here. But for a great portion of what claims to be the church, the Bible is really like any other book. It is at best man's attempt to explain God. It is filled with fantasies, uh, colorful stories from superstitious people who are not quite as enlightened as we are today, right? <laughs> no, it's not right. And while the Bible may teach us good lessons and, and be a source of comfort for troubled times, the value and truthfulness of its contents ultimately bow to science, philosophy, and, and the general reasoning of men. By the way, this is called having a low view of Scripture. Uh, having a low view of Scripture uh, automatically means you're going to have a low view of God, and more than likely, you're going to have a higher view of man than you should. It, and just as a side note here, um, uh, why do you think that people have a low view of Scripture? Is it because there's not enough evidence that, that would tell us that God's Word comes from God? Is that the issue? That's not the issue. Uh, the reason people have a low view of Scripture, well, really... Uh, we're all familiar with Romans 1 and how people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we're talking about 
God's revealed will as he reveals it through creation. How people suppress that, and why do they suppress it? They suppress it because they love their sin. Well, people have a low view of Scripture for that same reason. People have a low view of Scripture because they love their sin. They love their sin. Have you ever noticed in churches that have a low view of Scripture, you begin to see some issues with respect to, for example, the roles of women in the church, and then that ultimately leads to uh, poor views on uh, sexuality. You begin to get a little loose with that, and then, then suddenly you have a uh, lesbian female pastor leading the church, and they say that's okay. That's where a low view of Scripture leads you. And obviously I know that most of us here are here because at Calvary Bible Church we have a high view of Scripture. And one of the things, I mean, I don't know exactly, you know, where, where our paths will take us down, you know, or in the future, but... If you ever find yourself in a church where you see this compromise on the Word of God, even a little bit, you need to run, not walk away from that place. Get out of there. I don't care how good the youth program is. I don't care how nice the people are, how charismatic the pastor may be. Once the church makes even that first little compromise in this area, there's trouble to follow. So, we know that God's word is authoritative. And we know this because, first of all, the authenticity of God's word is affirmed by the authors of Scripture. It is affirmed by the authors of Scripture. The Old Testament prophets claim to speak on behalf of God, for example. How many times do we see the phrase, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord? I went King James there, but thus says the Lord. How many times do we see that phrase in Scripture? I don't know, a bunch. These Old Testament prophets are claiming to speak on behalf of God. And further, the writers of Scripture provide us with uh, several examples of how the Lord calls his prophets to service. And he even tells them how to recognize true prophets from false prophets. And turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Beginning in verse 15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you, des uh, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, 
Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. By the way, let me just stop there. God takes his word very seriously, doesn't he? He takes his word very seriously. The penalty for being a false prophet is death. In verse 21, he says, And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the, word that the Lord has, has not spoken? And here's what he says. He says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So what God is saying is, is or what Moses is saying here or God is saying through Moses is that you're going to know whether or not a prophet speaks for me because if he speaks for me what he says will come to pass that's how you know that this prophet is or has been sent from me so Here's one example of how the authors of Scripture are, are affirming that, that God's Word comes from God. The New Testament authors also frequently refer to the Old Testament as God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by who? By God. We also see the New Testament authors referring to their own writings and other New Testament writings of scripture. And just to give you one example, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, um, Paul writes this, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, I am speaking on behalf of God. So, we see, and by the way, we could, we could look at many more examples, but I, I think the point's been made. The writers of Scripture refer to uh, their writings as the word of God. But the authenticity of God's word is also affirmed by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And um, uh, Tommy even mentioned that in, in his prayer this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14. 
Paul writes, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual and spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Then he goes on in 14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, these truths can only be understood by those who are spiritual. And what I'm saying here is that we know that the Word of God comes from God because the witness of that inner spirit working inside of us. We also see that in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10. Um, particularly in verse 27. By the way, the context here, if you may remember, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus with what they perceive as his veiled comments about being the Messiah. And they basically say, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, And he says, I told you, but you do not hear because why? Because you are not my sheep. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening here? Why Why did the Pharisees not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Because they were not his sheep. They did not have that, that inner witness. They, what we see here is what's going on really in 1 Corinthians 2. The testimony of that inner spirit allows us to hear, allows us to recognize that it is truly God speaking to us when we see his word. Everyone with me so far? So, the authenticity of Scripture is affirmed by the writers of Scripture. The authenticity of Scripture or or God's Word is also affirmed by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is a big one. It's also affirmed by the example of Christ. By the example of Christ. Jesus regarded the Old Testament, for example, as being historically factual. The Gospels record several of his comments in which which he refers to the real-life events of the Old Testament. He also believed the Old Testament books were written by those men whose name they bear. And of course, he believed that the words of the Old Testament were from God himself. Mark 12, 26. And as for the dead being raised, you have not read in the book of of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. There's a lot more we could talk about here, but 
This one verse is proof enough for me. If Jesus believed that the Old Testament was speaking on behalf of God, if the creator and sustainer of the universe believed that the Old Testament is speaking on behalf of God, then we should too. Saints, if Jesus was wrong about Scripture, then we have issues, right? We have issues. If Jesus was wrong about Scripture, then really the whole of our faith falls apart. The whole of our faith falls apart. So, God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is also clear. God's Word is also clear. That's the second truth about Scripture I want us to discuss here this morning. God's Word is clear. God provides Christians with the necessary means to understand and rightly apply His Word. Now, how does he do that? Well, we've already talked about this, but just for the sake of context, let's mention this again. The first is spiritual discernment. The Holy Spirit living inside of us provides the necessary illumination we need to understand spiritual things. Again, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, or I'm sorry, I think it's 2 Corinthians 2, 13 And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we know that God's Word is clear because He gives us the necessary means by which we can understand what He is saying in His Word. But a second thing that God does is he appoints leaders in the church to preach, to teach, and to clarify God's word. Don't you wish one of those people were here today doing that, right? I'm kidding, but... Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, or he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Saints, aren't you glad that we have people like Pastor Harrell? Aren't you glad we have our great Sunday school teachers? Honestly, one of the great things I love about this church, we have a lot of gifted people who are, you know, from from our children's ministry through our adult Sunday school to the pulpit, we have a great group of gifted saints who love God and, and who are really, really good at feeding the sheep. I know I've been in the past part of a church, and, and maybe some of you too, where maybe you weren't getting fed as you should. By the way, I think that's a lot of time. I know a lot of us enjoy some of these parachurch ministries, and I certainly did, but I don't, I'm not into those as much now when I'm part of a good church where I'm being fed because when you're a sheep and you're not being fed, you're going to go search for food, right? 
but but God has given us godly leaders to preach, teach, and to clarify God's word. So God makes his word clear in that way. Another way, and um, uh, this is something I want us to really think about here, or really want us to see, is how God has providentially operated through redemptive history to make his word known to mankind. When you see that testimony of how God operates, it's really amazing. I mean, we go back to the New Testament, and uh, I think of Pentecost, for example. And what was going on at Pentecost, you had people from basically all over the place, and there wasn't a, the, the, the languages were mixed, and so, you know, the issue was, how are we going to communicate a truth in this, in this situation? Well, what does God do? Well, he supernaturally uh, uh, equips men with the gift of tongues. And by the way, it, the tongues was not just gibberish that we see today, but this was men speaking in a way that... Uh, other saints, maybe who didn't speak the language, could hear them in their own language. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. That God providentially, in that situation, made it possible for all of these people to hear his word. But we've seen that through church history. I want you to think about, for example, uh, uh, all the godly scholars that God has raised up, the biblical interpreters that God has raised up, uh, the, the, the biblical translators, all of these people. And really, think about today. We have more resources to understand God's word than ever before. Now, obviously, we have to be discerning. We have to recognize the, uh, uh, the, the quality of the resources because not all resources are, are equally good, but there's just a ton of information out there for us to learn and to understand God's Word. And honestly, really, we have no excuse for really being um, uninformed when it comes to uh, God's Word. We have no excuse for... Uh, as Paul says, to be tossed to and fro, not understanding, you know, basic doctrines of the church and, and, and more. We have no excuse. And certainly, those of us here at Calvary Bible Church have no excuse, right? That said, I want to add this one point. When we talk about the, when we say that God's word is clear, that does not mean that God's word is without difficulties and challenges. Certainly there are interpretive difficulties. Certainly there are, are challenges that we face. Um, it doesn't mean that God's word is always going to be easy to understand. But God does work in us. God does provide us with everything necessary everything we need to understand even the difficult truths of Scripture. Does that make sense? 
So, God's word is authoritative. God's word is clear. God's word is also necessary. God's word is necessary. God's word is necessary for understanding the gospel, for example. Saving faith depends on the preaching and hearing of the gospel. And Paul tells us about that in Romans 10, beginning uh, in verse uh, 13. He says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he qualifies. What does that mean? And he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. The preacher of the gospel is the necessary means by which God calls people to faith. So we see that God's word is necessary for understanding the gospel. And God's word is also necessary for maintaining a spiritually healthy Christian life. It is necessary for maintaining a spiritually healthy Christian life. Now, this is really the overarching theme of my message here this morning. And I feel like we've already established that fact, at least in some respect, early on. But I want to share one passage with you. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. And everyone's familiar with this story. This is Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By the way, this uh, quote that he, he, he gives here in uh, verse 4, it's actually taken from Deuteronomy 8.3. Um, this is basically the story of how the Israelites in the wilderness, um, basically God put them in a place where they were starving. And what did he do? What did he provide for them in order to feed them, in order to sustain them? Manna. Basically, he spoke manna into existence to feed the people who were, who were hungry at this time. And why did he do this? What, what was the point of this? But did he want to see the people starve? No. He wanted to see the people learn to trust his promises. He wanted the people to trust him to sustain their needs. He wanted them to know that they could depend on his word. This, by the way, this is a great example. Really, this, uh, thinking back to Matthew uh, chapter 4, we see Jesus dealing with Satan. This is a great example of how we should use the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? This is, this is the sword of the Spirit used with uh, uh, 
astonishing accuracy. I'll just say that. Amazing. And it's also, I'm not going to go down this road, but it's the antithesis of how Adam and Eve responded uh, to a similar temptation, but in a much better environment. Um, I'll save that for another day, but there's a lot of theology packed in that. But the point here is that Jesus understood the lesson of Deuteronomy 8.3. He trusted in the promises of God to provide for his needs. And not just his physical needs, but more importantly, his spiritual needs. That's the point. So, God's word is necessary for understanding the gospel. It's necessary for maintaining a healthy spiritual life. It's also necessary for rightly understanding God's will. Because we are all created in the image of God, all people have some knowledge of God's will through their conscience. We all have some sense of morality. We all have some sense of recognizing right and wrong. And even the vilest of people have some conscience. But the problem we have is that that understanding is distorted by sin. It's perverted by sin. The Word of God, on the other hand, uh, again, is understood by those who have been given seeing eyes, hearing ears, by those who have been given that illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God makes God's will clear. And I like what Moses says in uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. He says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that they may do all the words of His law. Now let me just say one thing here. When we talk about God's will, I've noticed over the years, that people have a tendency to project when it comes to understanding God's will. People like to say that God is calling them to do this or to do that. You, you know what I'm talking about here. Now, I certainly don't want to be totally dismissive of how God might operate in this manner. I certainly believe that a case can be made for how God works providentially uh, works through providential means to call people in different directions. So I'm not discounting that. But I also think that we sometimes use the word calling or we use the, word, or the phrase God's will a little loosely in this regard. And the one thing I uh, have ten, tended to notice is that when people say that, that God is calling them, when they're saying, I want to do God's will in this particular thing. Oftentimes it's pretty convenient. It's pretty convenient. God is calling me to do exactly what I want to do. Right? Well, I just think we need to be careful not to get caught up in this hype, this, this often subjective and often superficial understanding of God's will. 
God's certain will is set forth in his word. And again, well, I don't want to go too far down the road with this at this time. Just know that God's will as revealed in his word, it probably looks a lot different than what you might expect. When you think of what is God's will for my life, it's probably going to look a lot different than what you expect, maybe even what you hope for in some cases. Um, you know, God calls us to take up our crosses and to deny ourselves for a reason. So, so God's word is, is necessary for the rightly understanding of God's will. Lastly, we know God's word is authoritative. God's word is clear. It's necessary. What's the fourth one? Who can tell me? God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. When it comes to understanding the sufficiency of God's word, I, actually, I like what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It really sums it up very well. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, quote, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, if I may sum up what the Westminster Confession is teaching here, first, it is telling us that God's Word contains all things necessary for salvation, for Christian living, and for God's glory. God's Word contains all things necessary for salvation, for Christian living, and for God's glory. God's Word is sufficient for all these things. It provides all that we need. Second, the Westminster Confession goes on to say, again, as it pertains to spiritual matters, that things not explicitly stated in God's Word may be discerned or deduced from God's Word. Now, I do want to throw a little caution on this because we, we want to be careful here. Sometimes people may take this concept too far and actually read into God's word something that was not intended, something that's not there. But that's not what the Westminster Confession is suggesting here. The idea is of discerning meaning that is set forth, but not necessarily stated verbatim. And I think a great example of this is the Trinity, for example. Uh, God's word never explicitly uses the term Trinity but those doctrines that allow us to discern the Trinity are clearly set forth in God's Word. So does that make sense? So everything we need for Christian living, for salvation, for glorifying God is either explicitly stated in Scripture or it can be discerned or deduced from Scripture. And finally, the Westminster Confession makes the case that the sufficiency of God's word means that we may not add to it, nor, and this is my addition, subtract from it. We cannot add to it, nor can we subtract from it. And uh, 
This is affirmed in many places throughout God's Word, one of which is Deuteronomy 12, 32, which says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Now, this is a, another road I don't want to go down uh, uh, too far, but I think we should clarify what we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of God's Word and how it differs from what we see in the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has historically affirmed the inspiration of Scripture. In other words, while there is some debate on the canonicity of a few books, Protestants and Catholics through church history have generally agreed that the Bible is God's Word. That the Bible is God's Word. However, Catholics believe that tradition comes alongside Scripture to transmit God's Word in its entirety. In other words, they're saying, you need Scripture, you need the Bible, but you also need tradition. You need the, the affirmation of the Pope, for example, to, to have God's Word in its fullness. Well, we can immediately see the problems that this might cause. And as we have witnessed, unlike Scripture, tradition is ever-changing and it has historically led the church down many, many dark roads. Well, at one of those dark times, God providentially raised up people like Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, John Knox, and many, many others to lead the Protestant Reformation. These men rightly recognized the sufficiency of Scripture and the concept of sola scriptura, or, or scripture alone, which we have nicely displayed on which window here? Right here behind me. Uh, script, sola scriptura, or scripture alone, was set forth. And I think R.C. Sproul provides a very good, concise definition of sola scriptura. And I believe this is in your bulletin. But... but but understand this, it's really good. He says, the idea of sola scriptura is that there is only one written source of divine revelation, which can never be placed on parallel status with confessional statements, creeds, or traditions of the church. Scripture alone has the authority to bind the conscience precisely because only scripture is the written revelation of Almighty God. So, by the way, this doesn't mean that confessional creeds are bad. This doesn't mean that traditions in themselves are bad. Some are, some aren't. But what it is saying is that they cannot be placed on equal status with God's Word. In fact, the only thing, really the only good confessions, the only good creeds, the only good traditions they should be rooted in God's Word, right? So that's the difference. Only Scripture alone is, is the written revelation of an Almighty God. So when we're talking about the sufficiency of God's Word, we are also acknowledging that only Scripture can be regarded as God's Word. Everything else falls short of meeting the standard. 
So, in a very practical sense, the sufficiency of God's word should influence the way we understand matters of doctrine in the church. It should make us question so-called modern revelations from God. And, and saints, as you know, there's a lot of nonsense out there that masquerades as the church. Uh, so we need to be discerning, and, and the claim of receiving some sort of extra-biblical revelation, that is always a sign that trouble is going to follow. Well, in closing here, I want to talk about the sufficiency of God's Word just a little bit more, but kind of go in a different direction. Um, when we hear the phrase sufficiency of God's Word, some of us hear it in a more of a theological sense. And that is certainly the approach I've taken with it so far today. But some of us hear the term sufficiency of God's word, and we think of it more in a personal sense, especially if we are hurting. And I want to speak to that for just a few minutes. Because, saints, I know that some of our people, some of you are hurting right now. Some of you are going through very difficult trials, perhaps trials like you've never faced before. Of course, as you all know, trials are common to all men. Um, as Peter tells you, know, think it not strange. Trials are not an occasional guest. They come around daily. And trials are certainly not an occasional guest for God's people. And it's during times like this that you may be asking yourself, is God's word really sufficient? Is God's word really sufficient? Well, if you will indulge me, I want to go back to Jesus' account in the wilderness there in uh, Matthew 4, when he's being tempted by Satan. I'm going to read this passage again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now let me stop here for just a second. First of all, have you ever noticed how Satan knows just when to strike? In this case, he approaches Jesus while he is starving. And notice what he does. What's the temptation here? The temptation isn't turn these rocks into bread. I mean, that's, that is a temptation, but that's not the, the gist of the temptation. The temptation here is really quit listening to God. Quit listening to God. You will not be hungry anymore. Quit listening to God and your problems will go away. Quit listening to God and the hurting will stop. Saints, this is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the garden. When the evil one tempts, as subtle and deceiving as it might be, the spill is always the same. He always says in one manner or another, you cannot take God at his word. You cannot take God at his word. 
There's more comfort. There's more satisfaction. There's more delight, more joy. There's more of something better that you want to be found elsewhere. That's the temptation. Every time. Every time. But then notice Jesus' reply in in verse 4. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Saints, do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? When Satan essentially tells Jesus to stop listening to God, Jesus' answer is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. You know, it's often during those darkest of times when we really connect with God's word, when it gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And I pray that that will be an encouragement to all of us here this morning. Let us pray. Father, we... Thank you for these truths. We thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that these truths would um, convict our hearts. Pray that they would challenge us. I pray that they would edify this church. I pray that they would edify your body and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.